No, I mean, I think it's a real risk um, with the industry if, if, if the writers are genuinely worried about it and kind of thinking about it. We're already seeing kind of applications, right, of, of Gen AI being used for, let's say, marketing copy, whether it's, whether it's Jasper or other companies. Um, so it's not too much of a stretch to think of, uh, you know, original series and different kind of documentation being developed from past series. Um, I think the, the kind of worry in the field is what is original then? Um, if a lot of this technology is based off, you know, uh, historical screenplays and so forth, and you're trying to create a net new series, what is the more or less kind of, um, you know, what's unique, what can be trademarked, et cetera, and what won't lead you into legal trouble? Like we saw that already with like Ed Sheeran and kind of the lawsuit that he's facing and several others um, around kind of the originality of let's say music or media in general. Hello. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Thank you, Vincent Diallo, for the introduction to our guest today, Kevin Paracata. Partner at Plug and Play Ventures. Plug and Play is the ultimate innovation platform that invests and connects entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors worldwide. Some of Kevin's investments include Madison Reed, Manscaped, and Nada. We discuss the founding story of Plug and Play, why they invest in consumer brands and inventory-based businesses in the first place, how he's thinking about today's market, and much, much, much more. Without further ado, here's Kevin. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Hey, Mike. Doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing doing great. Doing really great. Um, want to start from, I guess, the very, very beginning of your journey at Plug and Play. What? How did you get your start at Plug and Play? Yeah, sure. So my path to VC, uh, so I was in college uh, in New York City, um, and I, at that time, wanted to be an investment banker. Like in New York City, you know, every kind of student there wants to become a banker or a consultant, it seems like. Uh, and now I'm sure it's probably like product manager or something. But um, so like most folks, uh, you know, interviewed at the banks and, and tried to get it. Uh, and ultimately, you know, had six or so super days lined up, which is like the final round of investment banking interviews. Uh, and then unanimously got rejected six times over um, uh, from every single bank. So... Uh, you know, a lot of people say like their path into entrepreneurship was like they had a kind of like this calling or um, they saw this massive problem in the market and stuff like that. Uh, for me, it was it was seeing kind of zero options out of college and saying, you know what, what's there to lose at this point? Might as well kind of get that entrepreneurial bug. Um, uh, so what happened was I had two friends. We just complained constantly about how expensive it was to get college clothing. Um, either college bookstore or kind of design your own. Um, so we ended up uh, creating our own uh, essentially um, online design tool that allowed students to design their own custom clothing, uh, work with different community organizations, et cetera. Uh, the business was completely inventoryless. Um, we never, we basically worked with uh, screen printers all around the country, offered two day shipping based on wherever you printed out of, uh, and more or less allowed and created our own you know, online design tool so that students could design their own. 
so that business did did well um because there's only three of us and we actually never needed to raise, raise venture funding but that got me the kind of tech bug uh so then after that um one of the vcs that we were talking to when we were even thinking about financing just had an analyst position open up uh and they were a, a firm in connecticut um so ended up joining them stayed for about a year where we did a kind of variety of deals so we did like a like a luxury pet retail uh business we did a like uh, a painkiller business and several others so it wasn't kind of traditional venture capital it was more kind of investing in in early stage businesses of all shapes and forms one of the partners there ended up leaving uh and joining Simon Property Groups at that time new venture fund called Simon Ventures um uh and he texted me one day and said hey there's this new firm i'm working with called plug and play uh Simon and plug and play just partnered up you should come and join them so i joined um i was one of the kind of the first five on the invent- on the ventures team or investment team uh and then we've now scaled you know that team alone to about 150 people the company went from 50 people when i joined to now almost 700 uh in the past 6 years so it's it's kind of an insane time to join and yeah and then you know first did fintech and retail um as kind of the the practices that I was focused on um you know with kind of a background in commerce and consumer ended up more focusing on that and then rise into the ranks and and more recently moving to Austin that's wow that's crazy um that's that, that's awesome being part of plug and play like in the, in its um uh when it was much smaller because when i think of plug and play i think of i mean i remember i remember telling you this telling you this but like i've seen people just repping like plug and play in like air, airports when i travel and stuff like that like it's quite like a pretty well known brand when it comes to um on the investment side can you can you give us just a little bit of background in terms of though what kind of plug and play is all the different um i guess different um different ways it operates and a little bit about like the founding story of it So plug and play is a pretty unique story and kind of depends on who you talk to in Silicon Valley um because they may remember plug and play from kind of almost like a different era. Um so plug and play really starts mid 90s our CEO and founder um ends up making his money in other kind of classic businesses so he had like a, a water bottling business and kind of a plastic polymer business etc. Um and like most folks he ends up buying real estate. He just ends up buying real estate in a really great area, University Avenue in Palo Alto, which, you know, as you know, is right next to Stanford. Um so at some point he owns about 10% of the street. Um and he has kind of several different, you know, uh stores and and uh commercial kind of opportunities there. And one of them he decides to create as a co-working space. So uh he ends up renting that office space out to a bunch of different startups um and then opportunistically investing in them so those startups end up becoming behemoths of today google logitech paypal um and several others uh kind of through that endeavor so he gets the entrepreneurial bug or kind of the vc investing bug early and uh, he's kind of a classic real estate guy though so he decides to um get a much larger space in sunnyvale uh 150,000 square foot facility, you know, former kind of Philips uh offices that we reconvert into a co-working facility. Um and then, you know, 10 years or so go by and then we start noticing kind of different corporations coming into our doors. Um just asking about, "Hey, so who are some of the startups in here? Who can we work with?" Um and that was when our light bulb moment moment went off where we had originally just invested in startups opportunistically in the building and not really had provided 
um, any kind of corporate add-on. It was, you know, hey, we have a data center, we have different services we can offer you. Um, and when the corporates came in, we realized that we can actually create a model whereby, you know, we can create a panel of corporations around certain verticals and introduce them to startups. Uh, basically what we call kind of a many-to-many. Um, so many corporations talking to many startups in kind of an organized fashion. And then we as investors can more or less monitor that and hopefully invest in the best companies. Um, so that was a, that was a genesis of the model. I mean, we first started actually with commerce and retail, um, where we partnered with, you know, Kohl's and several other kind of companies. Um, and that was actually in that initial cohort, we had Honey and Rappi and all these other crazy companies that we ended up becoming investors in. Um, and then we scaled out into 17 other verticals. Um, so the model is today is corporations pay us uh, to have access to amazing startups that can hopefully solve some of their key challenges. Um, the startups do not give us any equity and we don't charge them any fee uh, for what we offer. Um, and if it works well, it's a win-win-win, meaning the corporations get access to amazing startups that can hopefully solve some of their challenges. We as investors get access to startups that we can engage with our corporate audience and see which ones are gaining traction. Uh, and the startups get free business development. Um, and then the last three years, we even accelerated that model even more by now raising funds, um, where our corporations are now also oftentimes LPs in our separate funds, which allows us to invest even more than we typically did. So the corporations were originally, is this roughly right? They were kind of paying you a, a, fee just to honestly manage and bring opportunities to them but you weren't well you i guess you were also writing checks in those in those funds but was that money coming from other places before you before the corporations actually became your lps yeah so initially i mean it was it was essentially the family office of the immediate the the founders of of plug and play um where we were just opportunistically investing in, in the businesses right um over time the business model of plug and play has now fed into the, the original investment vehicle, whereby the revenue coming in more or less, uh, you know, after covering operating expenses, the profit is then reinvested into the startups um, that we're introducing to these corporations. Um, but we don't always invest in every company, right? It's, it's kind of building a relationship with the startup and opportunistically doing it. Um, and then now we've been able to supercharge that where the corporates, you know, are LPs and now we're able to invest in, in greater amounts. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, also quite as um as you say like it's pretty unique in terms of your you're creating this um this community or 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 really essentially like a market in order for um for the actual startups uh themselves for business opportunity for business development opportunities can talk to corporations when it comes to thinking about what opportunities and pain points that some of these corporations um are experiencing do you and and looking at okay what then startups are kind of solving these problems how does it also work? Is is it are these corporations kind of telling you some of their pain points and problems that they're solving, and then you all think, okay, then we need to focus maybe on this certain uh, area. Who are the best entrepreneurs building in maybe this specific vertical or solving this pain point, or is it a bit more like um, like looking just not really having that input from corporations, but looking more so um, just about um, uh, talking to entrepreneurs and a bit more um, maybe bottoms up per se. Yeah, no, it's it's honestly a little bit of both, right? So we, in some sense, are the therapist of, of corporations. Um, they come to us with their problems. In theory, we, you know, we're patient, we're listening, we understand. Um, and then we're able to more or less kind of, um, you know, help them find a solution 
uh, with different entrepreneurs. And maybe that's not exactly what those com- that company is doing, but maybe potentially solve what they're doing, right? Um, so corporations come to us with real-time problems oftentimes, like, hey, we're facing, let's say in the case of retail, we're facing stockouts in Asia, um, or you know, we're looking to better understand our consumer or whatever it may be. Um, and then we're more or less uh, finding startups that can hopefully solve some of those challenges. Um, and then we either organize them into kind of two different formats. So one is in our in our different cohorts. So we run cohorts of startups that we accelerate twice a year. They're all the way from seed stage to pre-IPO, um, and that's kind of a that's a that's a consensus based model. Meaning all of our corporations are letting us know, hey, here's kind of our six months priorities. Do you have startups in and around the space? So therefore, the startups is a reflection of a group of different companies. So Nike may face certain challenges. That McDonald's may not face, and McDonald's may face certain challenges, etc. Um, but by creating that cohort model, you really kind of get that discovery element of, oh wait, I didn't even think about that. Maybe that could be apl- applicable for my industry. So that's one part. So they're telling us about their current problems. Um, but I think what we are trying to do is saying, what are the solutions of today, and what new problems have they created uh, that will, in theory, need a new solution? So an example would be. Um, you know, let's say robotic automation in the factory setting, um, where, you know, all these different, you know, robots are handling kind of every single process from picking to actually shipping the product. Um, what kind of new problems does that create? Well, you know, uh, the routine maintenance of those robots, the programming of them, uh, the kind of new learning or data models that they now have to go under. Those are all new things that maybe these corporations will face later. And that's where we kick in and try to think of those new problems that come about based on the consensus of where we think the industries are going. Um, and then that's generally what we like to invest in. And then maybe they might be more applicable to our corporate base in a year or two later when they're facing those problems. I like that in that it's a bit of both, where corporations come to you with with, with what their problems solving or um or or their problems or what their um what they potentially might be interested in that really could um could help um their organizations um on, on their side, um potential bottlenecks that they're running into. And then you all are able to kind of source companies that um that can um help those corporations. Um, that or that are that are trying to solve that particular problem, but at the same time might also be open to maybe other problems that might not have been uh, thought about yet on on, on the corporate side. Um, and then it's like it's, it's two co- uh, cohorts. Is that right? Annually? Yeah. So it's two cohorts per vertical per location. Um, so we have about fifty or so locations. Um, so about two thousand or so companies are going through one of our cohorts every year. Um, all over the globe. So know that you're based in Austin. I mean, um, how do you think about like Austin's like, are are, are you, since you're based and, and focus on the cohorts in Austin, does a, does a company have to be based or have like a tie into Austin in order for them to be part of that cohort? Yeah. So just quick clarification. So I live in Austin, but uh, I mainly manage our kind of Silicon Valley office. Um, yeah, we, we don't have a formal presence in Texas as of now. I lived in California for the last five years and then moved to moved to Austin about two years ago. Um, but in terms of kind of our processes or how we look at Texas, I mean, Texas is going to be our next market. Um, we're super excited about it. There's kind of 54 Fortune 500 companies. There's a variety of different entrepreneurs that kind of live in the state. Um, we've looked at kind of, you know, uh, LinkedIn statistics, et cetera. And it seems like a lot of UT Austin graduates and other graduates and other kind of leading tech institutions, there's kind of a brain drain going on where they're often going to the coast, 
to work at different startups and so forth. Um, so we see this state as a next market. Uh, so that was part of the reason why I moved. Uh, and then hopefully kind of in the next 12 to 18 months, launching something here, um, perhaps in consumer, we're, we're kind of seeing where the industry goes. Got it. Well, how are you thinking about like the industry um, industry right now, especially when it comes to, you know, media and commerce and um, I mean, I, and, and the overall landscape today, since it is, it is like, a, I, I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a pretty odd, weird market right now. Yes. Uh, and on the backdrops of HBO rebranding to Max again, uh, <laughs> the third rebrand, right? I'm trying, I'm trying to think of how many different times HBO has gone different ways. Um, two different worlds, right? So commerce, um, commerce is, is near and dear to our heart. You know, let's take kind of the fashion retail space as an example. Um, what we're seeing specifically in that space uh, is kind of over inventory. Essentially what happened there, uh, and you, you play in the supply chain space, so you, you know it well, is where a lot of these retailers and brands uh, faced stock shortages, et cetera, and had to order, then faced a variety of different issues alongside the supply chain. And then now we're sitting on kind of copious amounts of inventory. Um, and now it's we're seeing kind of mass liquidations, players looking for um, any kind of wholesale outlet or any potential where they can, you know, get rid of that dead inventory. So that seems to be a kind of a consistent challenge that we're seeing kind of amongst our retailers and brands. Um, couple that with kind of cost cutting, lower consumer confidence, um, kind of a general reluctancy with, with inflationary kind of pressures. Um, overall, I think that's affecting retail um, in kind of a pause moment where we're seeing that from an innovation perspective, um, the interests are changing for, you know, closer to automation. How can we potentially be more efficient as an organization? All of that. Um, on the media side, I think the, I think the writer strike is, is so interesting in kind of what's going on in that lens. Um, so like one thing that I noted kind of in the, the recent kind of negotiation is on the side of the writers, it's, hey, you can't use any kind of generative AI or any kind of AI and replace our jobs uh, in the future. And there should be some kind of assurance against using that technology. Um, we're seeing that as well, where it's where the, the entire media landscape as we go more into OTT and streaming has really changed in the effect on labor, um, whereby media companies, you know, historically, if you had a kind of a, a on-television show, you're running for several seasons and then you were getting paid royalties and so forth. Um, I mean, I think it's like well known at this point. Uh, the, cl- the cast of Friends is still, you know, generating millions off of um, off of the revenue of their of their shows. But then, when you do kind of from a streaming perspective, oftentimes these shows are single series, uh, limited episodes. Filming is for kind of a short period, um, and royalties aren't exactly the thing. Um, or they have kind of a different lens as to what uh, as to how they're structured. So therefore, the the writers are in one sense treated differently and more commoditized, even though we kind of live in a in a limelight of of all things media. Um, so that's you know it's we're seeing kind of a focus on an interest in in using artificial intelligence and using kind of different solutions to optimize the cost structure, uh, primarily from both groups. I think it's just given kind of macro conditions. So you know, on the AI side, do you do you see um, that, you know, AI might replace when it comes to, um, maybe some of the writers, not, not, not all, obviously all writers when it comes to a TV show, but, but maybe some of like the writer's jobs, um, that actually maybe like, uh, a, a head writer per se might, 
um, communicate and write a write a script with you know um, AI as opposed to um, as opposed to hiring you know other writers f- uh, for a particular series. Yeah, no, I mean I think it's a real risk um, with the industry if, if if the writers are genuinely worried about it and kind of thinking about it. We're already seeing kind of applications right of of Gen AI being used for let's say marketing copy, whether it's whether it's Jasper or other companies. Um, so it's not too much of a stretch to think of, uh, you know, original series and different kind of documentation being developed from past series. Um, I think the, the kind of worry in the field is what is original then? Um, if a lot of this technology is based off, of, you know, uh, historical screenplays and so forth, and you're trying to create a net new series, what is the more or less kind of, um, you know, what's unique, what can be trademarked, et cetera, and what won't lead you into legal trouble. Like we saw that already with like Ed Sheeran and kind of the lawsuit that he's facing and several others um, around kind of the originality of, let's say, music or media in general. No, that's a good point. And it, and it seems as well when it comes to TV shows and um, and film content in the sense as opposed to music content. Well, also music con- uh, content has, has gotten hammered too, but um, as you say, it, it, it seems like writers might be get double. Um, it's kind of like a double whammy for them, where you might get um, it, it, instead you might be you know utilizing generative AI, so it might lead to um, uh, less jobs available. But even also, if you get a job, as you say, we've now shifted to uh, streaming, um, not totally, but um, with streaming and and the royalties um, far lower, or I don't know what the royalty kind of um, looks like on streaming versus. Um, linear television, but um, and then also with limited series, um, that your your royalties and what you're actually uh, getting paid if you do have a hit show, that's going to be far less than what it used to be. Yeah, no, I mean we're seeing like it, it's the economics just you know don't make sense necessarily when you think about um, what the studio could pay for the individual, let's say writer or staff, compared to let's say the studio could have paid for Friends, right? So on Friends. You would have that advertising revenue. You'd have that kind of hosting by Comcast and NBC um, that would consistently be able to pay, pay everyone's salaries. Uh, but then when you look at kind of a Netflix user, uh, it's let's say the average subscription is 10 bucks a month um, and the studio is paying hundreds of million dollars for that production. Um, the revenue in terms of the cost structure, it just doesn't work out, right? So there has to be cost optimization at some point. Um, and it's very clear that today's kind of, um, you know, strike is more or less evident of that cost structure affecting the average person as an investor and 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 obviously someone that's very very deep into into investing in media where where then are you thinking about what actual opportunities in this um in this landscape actually could be interesting to you yeah so i think the space that's it's been around it's kind of dormant but doesn't necessarily get um a lot of love is, is rights management um which is, you know, just a space that is historically done by kind of third-party firms of uh, looking at kind of what the media rights are. Sometimes you hear of different rights that have sell have sold their um, different kind of media rights with that. Um, I think that's going to be ever the more prevalent, right? I mean, we already saw that with with the Drake song that came out that you know was completely generated by generative AI um, and several others, where we're seeing potential applications where you know the whole question of trademark and infringing that comes on. Um, so how do you kind of detect copyright or any kind of issues with that? Um, how do studios more or less think about, you know, evolving that technology with it? Um, and then how could you potentially leverage this technology 
in your, you know, let's say music creation or so forth, rather than prohibiting it outright, because I don't think that's how technology advances. You don't just prohibit something, you have to create new laws and regulations or rules around it uh, to do that. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I think kind of on the intersection of media and commerce is the ever-ending fight um, to lower consumer acquisition costs. Um, I mean, like CAC is a new rent, right? It is, it is a thing that's kind of often said. Um, you saw companies like Leap Retail and several others kind of base their, themselves on that premise that if you have a brick and mortar presence, you will naturally have you know higher quality traffic than a web browser, et cetera. Um, so that's always been interesting to us in how to better monetize your ad traffic um, and or create a better kind of optimization funnel through that. Um, and there have been kind of a number of technologies that have gone through that space, right? So I think that will stay relevant. Um, and then more on the commerce end, um, specifically for direct-to-consumer brands, um, is, is working capital, right? We're seeing that consistently brands struggling with that. Some of our earlier investments, those companies um, had to more or less give out a huge cash outlay in, in Q1 to pay for different inventory, and then we'll get paid back in Q4. The cash in, like the cash cycle was very inefficient, um, and oftentimes, you know, in the heyday of DTC venture capital investing, these companies would often raise venture capital money to pay for that working capital needs, um, and then you can you know, that worked for a short period of time, and then we saw kind of the downfall of that. Uh, with a variety of BDCS ones. So uh, like a huge kind of gamut of, of different interests right now. Why does plug and play invest in brands, period? Because if if part if if part of the um proposition or or value add, right, is that kind of um on the BD side to corporations and for corporations to figure out, okay, okay, how can what types of uh, companies could actually help us with with op- with optimizing maybe some of the problems we're running in. Um, you know, obviously brands are telling to consumers, they aren't telling to corporates. Why, why invest in brands in, in, in the first place? Yeah, no, I mean, if, if I leave with an impact of plug and play, it's kind of with this, uh, is, uh, <laughs> is convincing other folks to, um, to invest in direct consumer brands when, you know, there was largely kind of a hesitancy to do it. Um, I, I think it was primarily because, you know, when you're talking to corporations all day long and you know, different spaces and so forth. You naturally can see the white spaces that exist that no one's really tackling, right? Like, so let's take Manscaped as an example. Um, so Manscaped, you know, obviously super edgy category below the waist grooming, um, really kind of a taboo subject, even when they launched in 2016. Um, and then, you know, at the time we're working with some of the companies that create kind of the leading razors and so forth. The interest there is, is primarily in different things. So we can see from that. The, the change in marketing, the focus on kind of an edgier language, the, the huge focus on um, kind of high quality, more higher, higher priced products, something entirely due to see. Um, and that's where, you know, when you see kind of the white space and the opportunity and just, it's just kind of taking on those investments. Our, our primary investment thesis is always going to be kind of B2B technology. Um, but opportunistically, kind of we see these opportunities come up and then it's a no brainer for us. On the DC consumer brands uh, uh, front, um, how do you also think about this as well from like an exit potential uh, a standpoint too? In terms of um, okay, there's white space here. Um, I believe that like a corporation will eventually because you know most of like the successful exits happened uh, happening uh, for strategic. 
I presume that's probably going is probably there's, there's probably going to be more appetite for it um, in terms of what the su- su- successes are, just because of the kind of the state of 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 how brands have exited to um, uh, from an IPO in the past typically hasn't really panned out. So there probably will be more um, uh, more appetite um, to want to um, w- w- when it comes to an exit that that exit actually comes from a strategic than from going into the public markets. But um, how do you think about it when you make an investment? Um, in uh, on the brand side, from uh, it, if from an exit opportunity uh, perspective, it's a totally kind of different mindset, right? Like, uh, I think what we saw in you know a couple of years ago, where where direct to consumer brands were being valued um, like SaaS companies, where let's say a company was doing ten million in revenue, they were being valued at a hundred million um, because of let's say you know a celebrity sponsorship or a lot of hype around the product and so forth. And now we're starting to see, you know, several brands getting kind of more realistic multiples, um, primarily because of all the challenges that we've discussed, right? Inventory, cash orders, consumers buying, you know, you don't, you don't always need, let's say, um, a baggage item or a new mattress or whatever it may be um, every two months um, where you'd have kind of a frequent purchasing order. So for us, as we kind of evaluate these companies, so it's entirely different um, on the SaaS and kind of uh, enterprise technology side, it's really kind of on the ability for partially of us to be able to create value for the company. Um, if we know every single insurance company in the world, then in theory, if we invest in a sure tech company, how many companies can we provide value to them? And, you know, let's, let's get, let's take it to their next milestone, whatever that may be, uh, a million in ARR, or whatever it may be. On the consumer inventory, kind of direct to consumer side, it's really evaluating just the core multiples. Um, first, of course, it's focusing on the team and understanding if the team can make sense there. Then it's the product. And if we think the product has a lot of viability and has kind of a wide application. Uh, but we won't, we typically do not invest in kind of a pre-revenue consumer brand. Um, I think others are really equipped to do that. And you've had several kind of great investors on your pod, uh, just talking about all the ways that they're able to do it. For us, it's, you know, how can we give them access to potentially the storefront? How can we give them access to potential agencies or others that we can um, that can help them along the way? Um, but it's and then when we do invest, it's not anywhere near SaaS multiples. It's kind of almost like a a hard and fast no if a company is raising anywhere near that, uh, because we've seen even through our own portfolio, right, of companies that where we maybe learning this, we tried to invest in those companies and then saw kind of the rise and fall of them from a multiples and valuation perspective. Roughly from a multiples perspective what's typically like the range that you would if you like a company that you would maybe uh make the investment compared to what like the SaaS multiple would be yeah so from a, a classic inventory business like um we're generally looking at let's say 1.5 to 3x top line um and then on the SaaS side you know that really varies um it kind of more more or less depends on the speed at which they can kind of acquire their tam but we think they can actually, you know, reasonably gain in market share. Um, but oftentimes, you know, I think the kind of the standard in Silicon Valley these days is if it's a pre-revenue business, it's usually north of, let's say, 10 million um, post um, for a classic, let's say, SaaS business. Obviously, there's variations to this. Um, but, you know, and even on, even on that front, I think we are becoming more valuation sensitive as we're seeing kind of with all VCs where there's historical dry powder. Uh, everyone is sitting on these kind of large amounts of capital that's not being invested. Um, and at the same time, founders are often raising at, you know, 
uh, sky high valuations that get corrected through lack of interest. Um, so it's it's kind of checking ourselves too and making sure not that we're in a hype cycle or so forth that we've all seen now in the last three years. I really appreciate that. Um, and and to understand a little, a little bit more about the process, is it typically you um, uh, you obviously are looking at companies all the time. You select a few of them to participate in the cohort, and then depending on how that company does or or, or with the cohort and maybe feedback that you get from corporates or what have you, then you then you um, then you deb- then you might make the investment or not make the investment. Or are there other kind of ways that you think about on the on the diligence side? Yeah, so we can invest whenever. Um, yeah, so I think we often invest when companies are going through a cohort, uh, but we've, we've invested before, we've invested after. You know, um, our big thing is that we're not setting accelerator terms. You know, let's say 120k for seven percent or whatever the cookie cutter model is, um, because you know not everyone fits in that bucket. Um, and for us, what we've seen consistently. Um, is that corporations vary as to the type of technologies they want to see. Some want to be on the ground floor um, and work with you know two founders and iterating that idea. Um, others want a very established kind of you know product that they work with. So for us as investors, using that intel as kind of a backdrop to our investments, we too have to be flexible in when and how we invest. Right. Um, in terms of our process, the feedback helps. Um, but through time, it's it's largely been kind of the knowledge that we've gathered, right? So, um, you know, with 17 different verticals and working with most of the Fortune 500 at this point, um, we've been able to create kind of a huge database of notes and so forth um, that we can rely on. And then a, a pretty successful founder network that we can now consult and say, hey, what do you think about this new technology that's doing X, Y, Z? Um, so the corporate base has been helpful. Uh, but now we've been able to leverage kind of all the different aspects of the platform has created. It went from, let's say, a marketplace of corporations and startups to now a platform that has government, has successful startup founders, mentors, um, corporations, universities, et cetera, all of different kind of networks that we tap into when going into diligence. That's interesting because as you, I mean, as, as you pointed out earlier, like you're, you're stage agnostic when it comes to the cohorts. It could be, it seems like it could be, I think you said like a seed company all the way to like pre-IPO. Right, that they can actually participate in the cohort. So um, that's pretty because you say like um, you know there's a variety of problems that a corporation um, um, has, and so um, and there's obviously as you say it's like not like a cookie a, a, a cookie cutter like a variety of other kind of like accelerators per se um, um, in in that capacity. What's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? Oh, interesting. Um... I think the classic for me on the on the both kind of personal and professional side um, is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. The the classic, I'm sure other people have quoted that before. I mean, I think when I think about growing up, um, I didn't learn English until I was six years old. Um, by nature, I grew up in, in the U.S., uh, but my, pa- my parents decided to speak our native language at home. Um, so learning kind of the aspects of working through the business world and so forth um, and building genuine relationships, such a good book. Um, For me, it really helped in kind of actionable things. Like one thing I like to do um, is take notes on people, Um, like things that they've shared over time. And uh, kind of I have a doc that, you know, so-and-so has a birthday coming up or has two kids or whatever it may be. Um, And that was one of the tips that the book has taught in terms of just being, um, 
being focused on that. Another good one is, is Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. I was just going to bring that up. Yes. <laughs> S- similar concept, right? Like of, of how building genuine relationships and so forth. Like I'm sure you deployed a lot of similar techniques when you were launching your podcast. Um, so both of those have been super helpful. Um, on the personal side, I think um, the book called Shoe Dog, you know, the, the classic kind of interview of Phil Knight um, and his rise into creating Nike, that is just incredibly inspiring for me. Um, I read that book probably once a year just to think about how Phil went from uh, wanting to become a Japanese shoe importer to now creating kind of one of the most valuable brands in history. All it seems like to some extent by serendipity and accident, but then also obviously a lot of strategy and focus. Um, just a good book and something I always recommend to colleagues. Yeah, and I feel like there's like a, quite a few moments where you don't think he's going to make it. Um, and then you realize that as you're during the book, you have to like, kick yourself and be like wait this is nike like of course you're gonna make it you know it's uh it's kind of crazy and um yeah how to win friends and influence people and also um never read alone those are two of my favorites um i actually loved like one of my favorite moments in um never read alone was when keith is talking about um being in the cab in the morning and just calling and then calling everybody on their birthday and like and, and saying like like the cab drivers i'm sure like all think that i'm totally insane but i leave like all the like voicemails and like mapping out like when's like the appropriate time to call and stuff so crazy but like such a great such a great book i also like recommend that uh to so many people and i mean how to win friends how to win friends and influence people um yeah i i adore that book it's so good so good yeah i'm actually reading another one um it's called Unscaled by Hamantanej from General Catalyst. Um, really interesting book. He's basically studying how scale was the primary differentiator in technology companies until fairly recently. And now it's there's a huge focus on decoupling, on not having any kind of large capital expenditure, et cetera. So like, for example, um, you know, if you were, uh, let's say a company that uh, that operated a diagnostic software. You would need, in theory, kind of large amounts of storage to store all the kind of consumer data. But now kind of the new companies that are coming about are much more cloud-focused, much more nimble. They're not obviously having that. Um, and there's been a huge fo- you know, change in how the industry evaluates assets. Uh, and it used to be kind of the, the main thing that drove valuations. And now it's the opposite, where it's seen as, why do you have that huge cost structure, et cetera? Uh, and I wonder if that's going to change now. You know, like, I wonder if that's going to, if that ties in to come back somewhat uh, to having some sort of scale and some sort of ownership um, as we're seeing kind of different assets, you know, cloudified, if you will. No, totally. That's a great, that's a great point. I mean, even thinking about it from a consumer brand standpoint, um, you know, I think um, many investors, like I, I talk with a, a CPG investor and uh, she was saying how, you know, when um, brands vertically integrate and actually own their operations, that that could scare off a number of investors because it's like why 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 do that? But actually, you know, long term, obviously, it depends on the business. D- depends if it makes sense. Um, every situation is different. But long term, if you actually own your own your uh, manufacturing, you have a lot more control in terms of maybe your margin. You have you don't have to you don't have to maybe negotiate costs. Um, but you do have a lot of um upfront capex as well. Um, um that you obviously have to um you have to deploy. Um, and so um and so. 
uh, it's it's quite interesting um, kind of rethinking when does it make sense to like vertically integrate your brand or if it makes sense to open up your own factory or if it makes sense to actually, you know, co-manufacture, which, you know, so many more brands obviously co-manufacture than, um, than obviously producer than actually are vertically integrated. But like on that standpoint too, that that's also quite interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, at, the, like, at some end, right? Like, so you have like, like, let's say within commerce, right? You have like the Shopify model, which is the hub and spoke um like shopify hey we're the commerce platform but if you want to plug in a return solution or whatever it may be here's kind of this marketplace of third-party apps um and then now there's kind of the anti-shopify the cart.com of the world which is hey we will create everything in-house um and provide you an all-in-one solution um to that right and then you like it's it's kind of this ongoing war of well do we want scale or not scale and then when both of those companies i'm sure are raising it's a different pitch of hey we're going to need let's say five million dollars to run run this company versus hey we're going to need 100 million off the bat to develop the kind of whole suite of tools um and inventor investors sit always like you know on, on kind of both ends of that tail well how where do you consider yourself because obviously if you have a whole suite of like you know, I I hear investors a lot say, you know, obviously, and also founders too, you have to focus, focus on one thing, focus on, you know, the one problem, maybe the one pain point or problem that you're solving, where, you know, in the cart.com example, it's a suite of solutions, right? You're, you're, you're trying to solve many problems for the entrepreneur. Where do you sit when you actually get pitches from, from, um, from entrepreneurs, if they're trying to maybe solve um, or offer like a suite of, uh, a suite of products versus maybe just one, one thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like even let's say on cart.com, right? Like they are developing kind of a suite of different features, um, more or less on the premise of, of hey, uh, we want to provide this all-in-one solution because we think, you know, Shopify commerce or so forth is broken, um, which is interesting. I mean, we're not investors in that company. I just found it as an interesting kind of tidbit um, on as to how, how we evaluate companies is more or less like, what is your singular mission that you are entirely focused on? Um, and is that mission, you know, something achievable? And how are you going to create the products and features that get there? Um, oftentimes what we're seeing, and we generally agree with kind of the, the mass market advice, which is, um, you know, like if you develop a product without any feedback or customer demand, you're just developing, you're tinkering and so forth. And there are times where you're, you know, uh, kind of in a Steve Jobs-esque moment where you're creating technology that the consumer didn't know they wanted or the, you know, the customer and so forth didn't know what they wanted. But a lot of times it's not on enterprise technology. Um, they have a clear mandate. They have a clear interest. Uh, they've cost-evaluated kind of every different structure and they've chosen to buy versus build or so forth. Um, so in specific kind of in the market that we often play in, it's often very advantageous to find that product feature that's large enough that solves a clear problem uh and then money has to talk the traction has to come and so forth otherwise it's just not viable like it's you know especially in this kind of venture climate um you just like the ability to tinker and create kind of a whole suite and just throw it at a wall um without necessarily a vision behind it or kind of a clear as to why it just isn't flying in today's venture market yeah no that's a great that's a great point kevin this has been such a blast. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. This is great. Loved it. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Kevin. Thanks so much for listening, folks. If you're enjoying Consumer VC, subscribe to the newsletter so you can get all the new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. 
at theconsumerbc.com. Thanks. Thanks.